everyone. Today on What's My Frame, I'm joined by legendary casting director, Jane Jenkins. Jane's extraordinary casting has brought to life some of our most beloved films, like A Beautiful Mind, Ghost, Apollo 13, The Princess Bride, Beetlejuice, Mrs. Doubtfire, and Mystic Pizza, to just name a few. Today on the show, Jane shares a healthy dose of encouragement for actors and some of her most memorable casting stories. She shares some insight from the room that is rarely discussed. Besides her iconic career, Jane is also one of the kindest humans you could hope to meet. Her love of actors is evident. Please join me in welcoming Jane Jenkins to the show. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jane. Could you start us off with your journey into casting? And then we will dive in to your career. Okay, my journey into casting began um, primarily because I was an unsuccessful actor and I hated waiting on tables. So I gave that up. <laughs> and I wound up, uh, you know, I got, well, back up. I, um, I went to the high, I grew up in New York. I went to the High School of Performing Arts and uh, the theater was my life. And I uh, then wound up studying in New York at the HB Studios and did an off-Broadway play and blah, blah, blah. But I got married very young. I met uh, my then husband in Bill Hickey's acting class. And we were planning on being the next Lunt and Fontaine of the New York theater scene. That didn't happen. Um, but we did wind up touring with the National Theater Company, with the National Company of, uh, of, of a play called The Great White Hope. And the show closed in Los Angeles, and we stayed. And shortly after that, also got divorced. But then I wound up working in television um, on a couple of different game shows. And one job led to the other. And I wound up then working in production on film. I was in the right place at the right time and uh, wound up working for John Peters and Barbara Streisand on A Star Is Born. And then Frank Pearson, who was the man who wrote and directed that, asked me if I would come and work for him and on a film called King of the Gypsies. So I went to work for Frank and did a lot of research on gypsies, even got invited to an actual gypsy wedding, which is a trip and a half. And um, then I watched them casting. It was the first time that I really got to see what the whole casting thing was all about. And now that I was such an authority on gypsies, I kept on saying to myself, these actors that are coming in, they don't even look like, I mean, there is a look to gypsies. There is, you know, there's a quality that these people have, partly because they all come from mostly the same Romanian background and stuff. But it was like a light bulb went off in my head and I went, casting, wow, that could be a really great job. And maybe I could take my love of acting and actors and the now several years that I had been working in production as you know somebody's assistant or another mm -hmm. and I was really lucky um Ralph Waite who used to be the father on the Waltons was my old boyfriend but we still had a nice relationship and a friendship and I called him up and I said Ralph can you help me get a job as somebody's assistant or whatever at Lorimar in the casting department and he said, no, but I'm casting, a f I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm making a film. They gave, gave me a million dollars and I'm doing a film called On the Nickel that I wrote, I'm producing, I'm directing, I'm starring in, and you can cast it. And I said, are you crazy? I don't know how to actually, you know, there is Screen Actor Guild rules and contracts. I don't know anything about that stuff. And he said, 
actually the, the best thing that anybody has ever said to me, he said, go to the Screen Actors Guild and get the rule book. And back then they actually handed out this blue covered, you know, paper book. And I read all the rules about drop and pick up and how you hire actors and, you know, the rest as they say is history. And then through another set of um, sort of misidentification, somebody else, because I had worked for Frank Pearson, there was another woman whose name was also Jane, who also had worked for Frank Pearson. And some agent thought that I was that Jane. And she said, well, you know, George, Joe Scully, who was, I said, I don't know who that is. She said, well, didn't you work with Joe? And Joe Scully was a well-known casting director at that time. One thing led to another. I did not know Joe Scully. I was not that Jane. Um, but I wound up meeting Joe Scully and he hired me to cast, he was casting a TV show called The Paper Chase at the time. And he said, I'm really busy with The Paper Chase and I'm also doing a movie of the week called, based on the old TV series, The Millionaire. And he just handed it over to me. I went, okay. So I was literally in the right place at the right time and one job led to another. And then I hooked up with a wonderful, wonderful woman by the name of Jennifer Schull. And Jennifer had been uh, the casting director for Ray Stark. Mm -hmm. And uh, Janet Hershenson, who eventually became my partner, was her assistant. And Jennifer hired me. And shortly after I was working with Jennifer over at Ray Stark, she said, would you be interested in working for Francis Coppola? He's, he wants me to start a casting department for Zoetrope. And I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll go to work for Francis Coppola. Take a meeting. And so we didn't even have to take a meeting. He wanted Jennifer and she said that she would think about it if she could bring Jane and Janet. Now, Janet had been working with her as her assistant for probably a year. I had been there for three months. She owed me nothing. And she said she would think about it if she could bring the two of us. And so we then became Francis's casting department. And based on the simple fact that we were Francis's casting people, you know, all sorts of, that's how Ron Howard called and said to Fred Roos, I need a casting director. And he said, oh, hire Jane and Janet. And Rob Reiner called and said, I need a, ca you know, it was just, uh, it was the most miraculous thing of, literally being in the right place at the right time. You know, and, and I don't take away from the fact that I think we had great taste and we did, we brought in really terrific people and the, those movies were successful. But I think that so much of anybody's career is based on, you know, so much good luck and being in the right place at the right time. And that's how I, you know, I felt that it was, I was just very lucky. Yeah. Actually, that is a perfect segue because my next question was, I've heard you tell this story about Meg Ryan specifically, about when <laughs> great actors and opportunity meet. And I think, especially right now in the current climate, we need some of those like encouraging stories of <laughs> again, um, to stay encouraged, to stay focused. Would you mind sharing your perspective of when exceptional actors and opportunity meet and how that magic. If yeah, you know, it's, it's the one thing that, you know, I've been doing a lot of, of teaching lately, which I have so thoroughly enjoyed doing because I've, I'm pretty much retired from casting. And I feel that I have 40 years worth of really good information that is valuable and is never taught 
in acting schools. I went to acting schools. Nobody ever gave me any of this. Nobody ever talked about how do you walk into an office? How do you make an impression? How do you set yourself apart from all the other okay readings? And that is the most important thing. And part of it, I think, is having a sense of who, of, of self. And the Meg Ryan story, I always use it as a perfect example of no good audition goes unnoticed, but it doesn't always get you the job. And that's important to remember. I always feel that an audition is your introduction to the casting office. Um, I met Meg Ryan when I was doing Rob Reiner's, the first movie that I did for him was a movie called The Sure Thing. And back in the olden days, when they used to actually send casting directors across the country, I went to New York, I met a whole slew of terrific young actors. And this kid named Meg Ryan, who is I think 18 years old when I met her, came in and read and she was sensational. She was smart, she was funny, she really had a, a, a grasp on the scene, she knocked me out. And so I brought her in to meet Rob when we had you know, final callbacks. And he loved her. He thought she was absolutely fabulous, but not right. And I said, what do you mean? She's, I, she's fabulous. He said, yeah, she is fabulous, but she's too loosey-goosey. She, she has too much spontaneity to her. I want this girl, this character to be more repressed, more uptight. I said, she could be uptight. He said, she can be uptight, but she is not uptight. So we did not hire her. And then a couple of years later, Meg was in LA and I, we were doing The Princess Bride. Mm -hmm. And Meg came in and read for the part of Buttercup and she left. Actually in the room, Rob said to her, you're really terrific. Would you be interested in a TV series? And she looked at him in horror and said, no, no, I don't want to do television. I want to do film. He said, okay, it's all right. And she left and he said, she's fabulous. This kid is really terrific. But Bill Goldman wrote that Buttercup should be the most beautiful girl in the world. And she is adorable, but not the most beautiful. So you keep looking. And in the meantime, you know, Janet and I really loved her and brought her in on a number of films that we were working on during those couple of years. And she tested for like five different movies over the course of a couple of years and didn't get any of them but she was becoming very well known because there was studio deals being made at every studio in town. And we did hire her for two movies that actually did nothing for her career whatsoever. A movie called uh, Presidio with Sean Connery and a movie called Armed and Dangerous with uh, John Candy and Eugene Levy. Um, and then we were casting When Harry Met Sally. Mm -hmm. And Meg was the second girl to come in and read for Sally. And she left the room and Rob said, cancel everybody else, it's her part. And so to me, with that story, to me it's like the clearest, most linear example of how no good audition goes unnoticed and doesn't always get you the job. But that good work stands really strong and gets you called back and called back and called back until hopefully there is that part. And if it wasn't going to be in When Harry Met Sally, you know, just before we shot um, Harry and Sally, she had done, it hadn't come out yet, but she had a juicy, wonderful little scene in Top Gun. Yeah. That 
that scene alone, so if, I, if we didn't hire her, if we hired somebody else for Sally, although I can't imagine who, um, that scene alone from Top Gun probably would have gotten her that next step up because it was, it was a really touching scene and, you know, it was, and she was then ready. She was ready. She was that much older and more confident and more mature. Although even when I met her at 18, she'd already been working. She'd done a, a soap in New York and I think she had done Amityville. Mm. So she wasn't like a, you know, just off the turnip truck, as they say. She was, she was a professional young actress. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's, it's so important to go in with the goal of booking the room, not the role. And I really appreciate, I appreciate you saying that and honestly, like listening to that story, my takeaway was honestly, a really strong, good audition can be just as memorable as actually having a memorable role in the film. If it's, if you're in the room with the right people and that synergy is correct. Well, it's, it has been demonstrated to me so many times over and over again, where you, I, you know, we meet an actor on one project and we don't, I mean, years, many years ago when I first started casting, I met this young actor who was just out here from Chicago, whose name happens to be Gary Sinise. And I hired him for a little tiny part. I was, I was casting a, just before I went to work with Jennifer Shaw, I was casting a TV series at uh, Universal Studio called um, Kate, it was either called Kate Loves a Mystery or Kate Columbo. It was a spinoff from the Columbo show and Kate Mulgrew, uh, who had been Columbo's wife, Peter, uh, Peter's wife on his show, had her own show. And this guy came in and I thought he was really talented and we actually hired him and we wanted to use him as a recurring character. And he said to me, you know, I just started this little theater company in Chicago. I think I'm going to turn this down and go back to Chicago and work on the theater company. So cut to many years later, I hear, so now Steppenwolf is a major theater company. Yeah. And actually I had been in Chicago casting something and went to see a couple of their productions. And then um, I was working on something. So now it's years later, I'm, I'm casting something for Ron Howard. I can't remember exactly which movie it was. And I hear that Gary Sinise is in town. And I said to Ron, I'm not sure what, we should do with this guy. I'm not sure we even have a part, but he's here from Chicago and you should know who he is. Because I mean, by that time I was Ron's casting director and we'd done a number of films. And Gary came in and met with Ron and Ron said, he's a really interesting guy. I don't know what we would do with him either, but several movies later, there was Ransom, there was, we put him in, uh, in Apollo 13. You know, because I knew that he was an extraordinarily gifted actor. So I think that, you know, when you have the opportunity to meet with people, it's not just about the job. It's about a long-term career. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you have cast A Beautiful Mind, Apollo 13, and a personal favorite, Mrs. Doubtfire, to truly name a few. And so I want to take the classic question of, do you have a favorite project you work on? and flip it because you were a former actress. Do you have a favorite set of sides that you have auditioned? Oh yeah, well, it's all, it goes along with my, my the favorite film that I've worked on is The Princess Bride. Oh. I've worked on a lot of really good movies, but first of all, I had read the book, The Princess Bride, and if you can ever find the original book any place, because I'm not sure it's still in print, it is Roll on the Floor, 
clutch your stomach, laughing out loud, hysterically funny. So when Rob said he was doing it, it was like, oh my God, oh my God, I want to do this movie so badly. <laughs> and I didn't have a, a very long relationship with Rob at that point. So it was not any kind of a guarantee. I was not, didn't feel like I was a shoe and I sort of campaigned for the job <clears throat> and let him know that I read the book. Uh, and, and when we were casting it, we, there was a meeting that we had with William Goldman, who was such a great guy. And I said, you know, so this giant part, like, how big? What kind of a giant? I mean, I don't know too many giants who are actors. <laughs> and he said, you know, like Andre the Giant. And I went, oh, Andre the Giant. I had no, not a clue. I had no idea. I'd never heard the words Andre the Giant in one sentence. I didn't know who he was. And when I came back to the office, Janet's husband, Michael, ran the office for us. And I said, do you know who Andre the Giant is? He said, yes, he's like literally the biggest wrestler there is. Well, we couldn't get Andre the Giant. He was busy wrestling when I, when I finally tracked down how to find him. You know, because back then we didn't have the internet. When we finally tracked down the people at the World Wide Wrestling Federation, we couldn't get him. And um, I was meeting people who were giants and it was just the most bizarre kind of casting. And it was particularly more made more bizarre because the, I also, at the same time, or close to it, we were also doing Ron's movie Willow, and I was meeting little people. And so I was going from people who were three feet tall to people who were eight feet tall <laughs> in the space of a few months. It was, you know, it's a very interesting, colorful job sometimes in casting. You meet all sorts of people that you never expected to meet. It sounds like Alice in Wonderland. They're just it is a little bit. <laughs> um, now, just like you were saying, you know, now where you are in your career, I, I'm sure that the way that you meet pro projects is very different. But as a former actor, when you were starting out casting, what was your process for getting to know the script, understanding the characters? How did you, you know? I it's really interesting. I've always felt that my experience as an actor learning how to read a script, break down the script before we sent it to break down even, um, was incredibly valuable to me. And it was always part of my process. And I've always loved reading with the actors. I've always sort of waited to see if they could kind of hook me into the scene to play the scene with them. Mm. But that's just my process because my partner, Janet Hershenson, has never been an actress, has never wanted to be an actor, and was in fact not the greatest reader on the planet. And I would say, Janet, you just, you have to just give a little something to people. You don't have to be a great actor. But I've come to the conclusion over the years of doing that, that it's really not my responsibility to be as good an actor as I'm hoping that you are. I, I need, and I, and I talk to actors about this, if we all had the opportunity to do a scene with Meryl Streep, she would lift us up and make us the better actor to, because she would demand that of, of her part, her acting partner. So just as you would rise to that occasion, I think that the actor cannot lower themselves to the banal, boring, deadly reader that the people reading opposite them are doing. That's very hard to do. And I always say you have to kind of think of this moment as your close-up because you may not have your co-star. You may have some uppity co-star 
who is in their trailer. Or you're doing a very emotional scene with a five-year-old child and the child has to go take their nap now and you're doing your close-up with the script supervisor, you still have to have that full emotion. Well, your actors, imagine that child. Imagine, put that, put that child's face on whoever it is that's reading their lines. And, and that's the job of an actor. You cannot allow yourself to succumb to a mediocre reading because you'll get dragged down into the mire with, with them. And it's a challenge, but you really have to sort of lift yourself up to allow the scene to happen because we're not watching the reader. We're watching just you. So I, I think that that's, it's, I think it's really challenging to do and it, you have to be, you know, there's so much chaos going on in an actor's mind when they come into the room. They're hysterically nervous, their heart is palpitating, find frequently they can hardly talk. And so to stay focused on the sort of simple rules of acting, the who, what, where, when, and why of acting, to stay conscious of, okay, this person reading with me is not the right sex, the right age, or a very good reader, let alone actor. How do I, how do I rise above that and still give the performance? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's hard, but I think it's part of what makes, separates really great actors from not so great actors. You have to take all that into consideration. Yeah, that, that ability to mute everything else and yeah. focus the, the character's okay. voice. That's, that's a skill in and of itself. That's one of my favorite lines from, from Ghost, you know, when, when Patrick Swayze is on the subway and he says, and, the, and, and Vincent Schiavelli, the ghost, says, you have to just focus. And Patrick says, how do you focus? I don't know. You just focus. <laughs> just focus. You have to find a way to focus. <laughs> All right, Jane, you have actually started a very new segment on What's My Frame because there is literally no way other than to play a game to cover and to scratch the surface of your career. Okay. All right. Okay. When Harry Met Sally. When Harry Met Sally. Delicious. It's just, you know, I'll have what she's having, all of those lines, you know, putting the whole cast together, bringing in Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher and all those. It was, you know, it was really a delicious project. Ghost. Ghost was unbearably difficult, uh, but I got very thin. <laughs> I lost a lot of weight. <laughs> Nobody wanted anybody. Um, when I read the script for Ghost, literally, it is the only time in my entire career, but literally, I could hear Whoopi Goldberg's voice every time I read the Oda May lines. I kept saying, they probably have hired Whoopi Goldberg. Well, I had never worked with Jerry Zucker before, and Janet and I, you know, casting directors have to go in and do a dance and do an audition also. Absolutely. Um, and so Janet and I went to meet Jerry Zucker and I looked at him and I said, so have you already hired Whoopi Goldberg? Because it seemed to me like it was, yeah. it was meant to be. And he said, no, we thought about her, but we'd like to see who else there is. I said, really? <laughs> it's a miracle I got the job. I was so uppity about the whole thing. And so Whoopi actually came in and had a meeting with Jerry early on in the process 
and said, I love this script. I love the part. And Jerry really liked her a lot, but he was just, you know, she was having sort of a difficult time in her career at the time. The studio wasn't so crazy about the idea. There was a lot of sort of political stuff going on. Um, she had done a movie that didn't do great box office. So we sort of put a pin in Whoopi. And I kept telling her agent that we really like her a lot. Don't let her go anyplace else. Um, and then there was Patrick's part. And I, we had a short list of sort of the hot actors at that moment who consisted of people like Harrison Ford and Mel Gibson and um, I, I can't remember um, uh, a bunch. There were like 10, 10 names on a very short list. And Patrick Swayze was at the bottom of the list, but not at the top. The, the woman who was uh, the, the producer did not think he was the handsomest guy in the world. And then he was coming out with a movie called Roadhouse. And Jerry said to me, have you seen Roadhouse? I said, no, and I'm not really interested. Roadhouse is not gonna convince you that Patrick Swayze is the right guy. And a lot of the actors turned down the part of, of, uh, of Patrick's part because they didn't quite understand so this whole ghost thing, am I going to be seen and I'm going to come out of somebody's body? It was, you know, and special effects were not really as sophisticated as they are now. The special effects and ghosts were done on a very different kind of level than they would be if they shot the movie now. So we went through a whole lot of people and we were getting a lot of passes for the guy. We had met Demi early on, but of course you can't cast to me without knowing who the guy is. Yeah. So I was losing my mind and Jerry went to see the movie Roadhouse, although I begged him not to. And he said, well, Patrick Swayze is not, he's all wrong for us. He's never going to be in this movie. And I said, why did you go see him? I told you not to. And I knew Patrick really well because between Janet and I, we had cast him in four of his other movies in, in the outs. Well, Janet's very first movie was a movie called Skate Town USA. And she cast Patrick Swayze in what was his very first movie, Skate Town USA. And then she also cast him in The Outsiders and Rumblefish and I had cast him in Grandview USA. So we, had, we knew Patrick really well. And I kept on saying, you know, and Jerry kept on saying, but he's from Texas. I said, he's not just like a cowboy from Texas. He was a ballet dancer from Texas. He's not that kind of, that's not who he is. And I kept begging him to just meet him. And then Jerry said, yeah, but if I don't like him, you know, that becomes a very sort of delicate balance when directors meet. Because Patrick was, well, you know, he had already done Dirty Dancing. He was a movie star. Yeah. And if you meet a, a movie star and you don't hire them, it becomes very awkward. Mm. But Patrick's agent and I were old friends and at my first office, she rented to us for very little money and paid for all of our Xeroxing <laughs> and helped us with the deposit for the phone company. And she said, I gave Patrick the script. He really loves it. He would be willing to come in and read. I went, are you kidding? So finally, I had to convince everybody to let Patrick come in and read and said, you know, if we don't hire him, if you don't think that he's the right guy after this, we'll find some graceful way to get out of it. And it is to this day, one of my fondest, dearest memories of sitting on the couch in Jerry Zucker's office 
and Patrick and I reading the script, reading the lines together, and him saying, I love you, and me saying ditto. And Jerry literally leapt up. The producer, who didn't think that he was the handsomest guy in the world, was standing in the back with tears rolling down her cheeks. And Jerry leapt up and said, that was fantastic. You got the job. So it was, you know, and then after we met, literally, I think I counted once and it was like over 150 actresses that read for Whoopi's part. And then Jerry turned around to Patrick and he said, what do you think about Whoopi Goldberg? And he said, she'd be fantastic. And so it is frequently credited that Patrick Swayze cast Whoopi Goldberg <laughs> in Ghost. But that's how that happened. So it all turned out really great, but getting there was incredibly difficult. But I was thin. <laughs> Way to find the silver lining. I, that, was, <laughs> that was my best favorite part of the whole movie, that I lost a lot of weight. So that's a long way to answer that question. <laughs> oh I loved every minute of it. I still remember the first time I saw Ghost. Well, I. Yeah, it is a terrific movie. Every time I've, I've seen it on television, I just, you know, it's one of those movies where, you know, as the casting director, you say the lines so often. I sit there and watch and still remember a lot of the dialogue. It's amazing how your mind just files things and you're like, I can't yeah. remember what I walked into a room for, but I can still remember sides from like. Yeah. Well, The Princess Bride is one of those movies because, I mean, there's just too many great lines. You know, Janet and I used to say, okay, I'm really busy. I'm swamped. I have my wife's murder to plan. <laughs> you mock my pain. Yeah. Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park, I can't really speak to because it was Janet's project and she did most of it. Although I remember we sat in, Janet and I always worked on things together, but one of us took the lead and she took the lead on that. But we sat in a meeting with Steven Spielberg and he said, I need really good actors, but they can't be expensive because the dinosaurs are going to get all the money. So that's, that's what I remember most about that. But Janet is the casting director on that one. <laughs> a beautiful mind. A Beautiful Mind was also a really interesting movie to work on. Um, I got very involved in reading the John Nash story. Um, there, there was a book that it was based on and it was just an incredible thing. And we already had Russell Crowe. And the trick part for me was to be able to cast all of the guys that he was at Princeton with who were not going to be college kids because it would make Russell look like he was too old to be in college. And it was that fine line and also of finding actors who were going to be every good as bit an actor as Russell and match them all um, person to person. Um, it was not a movie that had a very big budget because we figured well, how many people are really rushing to a movie theater to see a movie about a schizophrenic mathematician? And it turned out that it was an enormously, not only did it win an Academy Award, but it actually made a lot of money because apparently there's a lot of schizophrenia in this world and people, you know, came to see the movie. Um, and it was a really just moving, moving film. But it was, you know, it was a project where 
I was really sort of looking for the creme de la creme of really good actors who could go toe to toe and be there each step of the way with Russell. But casting, this was an amazing, casting the imaginary friend was a bit of a trauma because very early on, there was a list of young guys who were really all terrific actors that Ron and I had talked about early, early on. It was like the first serious part that we had kind of cast. And we were in the process of hiring Robert Downey Jr. And then Robert Downey Jr. wound up going to jail. So that was, you know, Ron called me, I just before like all the news broke on television and the news and Ron said, um, we have a problem. And he told me that Downey just got arrested and blah, 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 blah. And we have to go look and I was getting ready. We were so far down in the process. I was getting ready to leave for New York to cast all of the New York stuff. Mm -hmm. And I went, Oh my God. And so there was a list of people that we had talked about and one after the other, this one wasn't available. This one was in the middle of shooting. It was just like, I didn't, I was, I was really flipping out because it was such an important part. And I was talking to a woman named Risa Shapiro, who is, um, who is Jennifer Conley's agent at, at the time. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. This one's not available. Like, where am I going to find this imaginary roommate? It was, I was beside myself. And she said, oh, you know, would you really, you really need Paul Bettany. And I said, okay, where is he? Get him in here. She said, I said, who is he? I never heard of him. She said, I said, can he come in? Can I meet him? And she said, no, he's in London. I said, can you, what should I look at? What, what has he done? And she said, you shouldn't look at any of his film. He did a, um, a movie where he played, I can't remember the name, but he played some kind of a gangster. She said, I don't want you to look at it. I went, um, should I just divine all of this? How do I know who, I don't know who he is even. And she said, let me see what I can do. And he had just done a movie called A Knight's Tale. And she said, can you go to Sony and would you look at some footage on uh, the editing table? And I went, I'll do anything. And so I drove out to Sony and the editor played me, uh, have you ever seen A Knight's Tale? It's a delightful, delightful movie with, with Heath Ledger. And the first scene where you see Paul Bettany, he's walking down a country lane in, in England and bare naked with his little tush waving back and forth on the screen. And he doffs an imaginary hat to a group of robbers, I guess, bandits. And he says, Chaucer's the name, writing's the game or something like that. And I went, that's my guy. I went, that's, what the, that's exactly what I'm looking for. And the guy who is the editor made a little, uh, put together a little reel of all of Paul Bettany's scenes. And not only were cell phones still kind of new, but we certainly didn't have all of this technology. So I had this little um, cassette, this VHS cassette, and I leave the editing room and I call, now Ram lives in New York and I'm here. Oh, and I didn't tell you, but it was like three days before Christmas and you know, the whole town shuts down. So I called Ram. I said, okay, I am putting this tape in uh, the express whatever to get it to you overnight. You cannot lose this because it is the only one. This is the guy. I think that we should hire him right now. He said, I can't hire him. I've never even seen him. 
I said, yeah, but as the editor was handing this to me, he said, boy, this guy is getting really hot. I just made one of these tapes for Steven Spielberg. I said, so Spielberg is going to grab him, Ron, and I'm going to commit suicide. <laughs> so, we, so, I, so I said to him, all right, why don't we make, like, a, put a holding deal together so we can hold on to him, and you'll meet him right after the holidays. And that's what we wound up doing. And right after Christmas, Paul went to New York and met Ron. And so finally, by the time I met Paul, he had already gotten Rob, Ron hired him on the, on the spot when he met him. And by the time I finally met him, when he came to my office, I like hugged him and I said, you saved my life. <laughs> and he met his wife and they've been together ever since. So that worked out well all around. So that's what I think of when I think of The Beautiful Mind. This has quickly become my favorite game, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, every movie does have its own. Some of them are more dramatic than others, but uh, that was, oh my God. Well, I think that's so, so telling to us as actors because there's so much that happens once we leave the room, both positive and negative, that we're mm -hmm. never ready to. And it just goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's, it's so important to build those relationships and book the room so that you all on the casting side know who we are as people and as creative so that we're auditioning so much more than we ever know. And is mm -hmm. having you guys in our corner as champions for us is the best thing that we could ever hope to acquire yeah. in, this, in this town. That's really what it's about, you know, is establishing those relationships. And it's always about the work, you know, one of my favorite actors was Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I never, unfortunately, actually got to hire, although I did audition a number of times. And we auditioned him. When I first met, the first time I remember meeting Phil was we were doing a film for Wolfgang Peterson called Outbreak, which has recently been on television since it's about a pandemic. <laughs> and you'll note that Philip Seymour Hoffman is not in it. So Wolfgang was an interesting director to, to work with because he found it very uncomfortable just meeting actors. He only liked, he watched all of their videos. He would watch a ton of people's, all their previous work, or if they didn't have enough substantial work, we would audition people and put them on tape and he would watch all of that. And he only met with the people that he felt that he was going to hire because he said, it's too hard to meet the people and not hire them. It's, he, could, he, just, he, was, he was very funny that way. But we put Phil on tape for a, a small part in, in Outbreak. I can't even remember what the part was, but it wasn't anything of great consequence. And we showed the tape to Wolfgang and he said, oh, he's very good, let's hire him. And so I called his agent and I said, Phil got the job. And she said, you know, he thought about it and he's going to very respectfully pass. I said, what? <laughs> she said, well, he's really thought about the part and what he can contribute to the movie. He feels that it's probably something that could easily be left on the cutting room floor and that he doesn't really have a contribution to make. I went, uh, okay. I mean, I was just dumbfounded. But okay, that's his prerogative. And I always felt the thing that was interesting about Philip Seymour Hoffman was that he had a theater company that he had put together in New York. He always had, he was never a desperate actor. He always had a place where he could go and work on his craft, and that was what was extraordinary about him. So then a couple of years later, I'm casting a movie for Ron Howard called Ransom, and there are four kidnappers. There's two guys who are brothers, a guy who's their friend, and a girl. And so 
I had all the guys come in, just pick anyone. I thought that all three of the guys were pretty equal parts. And I said, you know, here's the script. Have, I told all the agents, have your client just pick out the parts that they like. So Phil came in and he read for one of the brothers and he left the room and Ron said, boy, that guy is really a good actor. I said, yes, he is. He said, I really like him. I don't think he's right for the brother because we were, we hadn't quite hired him yet, but there was this other young upstart in New York by the name of Liev Schreiber. And we were about to, we had already decided on Liev, we just hadn't actually hired him. Yeah. Um, he said, but he and Leah, this, they, they can't be brothers. There's no way that they're brothers, but let's hire him. Let's have him be the friend. So I called his agent and I said, well, we want to hire him to be the friend part. And she called me back and she said, Phil would be happy to be either brother, but he doesn't want to be the friend. I went, why? <laughs> I mean, they're all really good parts. And she said, he doesn't want to be the friend. And so again, I didn't get to hire him. And I've always been a little heartbroken that I never participated in his career in, in that way because I just thought that he was such an extraordinary actor. And I have to say, and I think that this is important for actors to know, I, I've never held it against him that he came in and auditioned and turned down the part. You know, I, I felt that I discovered an actor that I didn't know I'm sure at some point in our mutual careers, there would have been some opportunity that I could have actually contributed to his career. And, and I think that you have the right, you know, I always feel that if there's a part that for whatever reason, either politically or emotionally or psychologically, you should not be playing that part, then just say thank you very much, but no. Yeah. You know, you can't take on stuff that you are going to be losing sleep over. Life is really too short. You know, I've, I've met men who came in for the part of the rapist who said, I can't, I can't, I can't be that guy. I don't want, I don't want to live with that. Or women who have to be raped. There are some actresses who can do that, who can do the nudity, who can do the sex. If you can, great, because we need you. But if you can't, I get it. You should never do stuff that is going to make you not just unhappy, but uncomfortable. And, you know, it's life is too short to live through that. And, and this whole business is hard enough to begin with. Very true. Jane, I want to be respectful of your time. I, I have only gotten through half of my questions. <laughs> I, I was very, very excited for this interview. Anyone who knows me can attest to this. I have to talk about it. Um, I'm happy to have uh, met you and I'm happy to do this. It's, you know, actors, here's one of my favorite lines ever on the face of the earth with regard to acting. Many years ago when we were all at Zoetrope, which was two fantastic, if chaotic, extraordinary years where there was never quite enough money to meet the payroll, where you'd be called down to the soundstage to be told that we don't have enough money to pay you this week, but we should have it all together by Tuesday. And Terry Gar, who is, we were doing uh, One from the Heart, and Terry Gar said, you know, it's really fascinating. Time is just time here. But she also said, she always, the line was, I, th I always thought that time was money, but time is just time. But then she said, you know, it's such an extraordinary thing to be an actor. You really need the skin of a rhinoceros and the heart of a butterfly. And that's what acting is all about, how to expose 
you know, it's a tough business. This is, there are easier businesses, there are easier ways to earn a living from, from being the casting director to being the actor to being the grip. All of those jobs are highly sought after and everybody wants them. And there aren't enough of them to go around for all of the people who want them and have the talent to do them, you know? Um, so you need to have a tougher skin. You need to walk out of the room saying, okay, I did the best that I know how to do. They either liked me or they didn't like me. I'm either right or I'm not right, whatever, and leave it behind. But you also still need the butterfly in your heart to open yourself and be, present the humanity of the part that you're there to play. Yeah. So it's, it's a tricky business. You're, uh, you, we ask you to open yourself up and lay yourself raw for us. And then we go, thank you very much. That was very nice. Goodbye. You know, and it's not always, you can't take it all personally. I know it is personal. It's, I mean, I've been in this, here, one of my favorite moments ever, Janet and I went in to meet a British director on, on a film, and I was really interested in working with this guy. I'd liked this English movie that he did, and he was very complimentary. He said, you know, the two of you have cast five of my all-time favorite movies and proceeded to name five movies. And we left, and I said to Janet, I think we probably got a job here. And a week went by, and two weeks went by, and didn't hear anything, and I finally called the agent at William Morris who had set us up for this meeting because he was a William Morris client. And I said, so has he made a decision? And he said, oh yeah, he's hiring so-and-so. And I looked at Janet and I said, I guess she cast six of his all-time favorites. You know, so I think that it's important and I always tell actors that story. I think that it's important for actors to realize that everybody on this movie, except for maybe the director, everybody has had to audition in some aspect. The costume designer had to show drawings. The editor probably showed a reel of other movies. I have to come in and do flips and take name names of people. I don't want to give away all my ideas. It's what I'm hoping you're going to pay me for. But that's what we all do. And we don't always get the job either. So that's, you know, that's the business that you're in. And still you have to maintain your sense of humanity and the reason that you're, that you're doing all of this. I would be mad at myself if I did not also say thank you to you and Janet both for opening so many doors for women in this industry. You've worked with... <laughs> There's a lot of casting directors out there. <laughs> yes, but the way that you two had this female-run office pre a lot of women having those opportunities, and you worked with some exceptional male directors, and it wasn't it wasn't just female power. It was it was very fair, and it it really is something that I think a lot of people myself included, really respect. So saying thank you for that. Well, we were very fortunate. There were a lot of terrific young women who came in to, you know, answer the phones in our office and you recognize their ability and you move them along. It's, it's, I always felt that it was unfortunate. There were, there were movies that um, Janet and I wanted to give to our associates and that we would supervise, but producers said, no, 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 we're hiring either one of you. And so eventually there were people, you know, who had to leave our office and our employee to go set up their own office. But it does make me very proud that there are a lot of terrific women out there who are casting directors now that we've fostered along the way and, uh, and taught. I think 
one of the things that I've always been proud of is that we've always treated actors with the utmost respect um, and have always ha had an, an office that was kind and thoughtful and understanding of the process, certainly from my perspective, having been an actor, however limited my career was, you know, walking into a casting office was the most terrifying thing. And I tried to make it as comfortable as possible for people who were coming in, because that's the only way you can do your best work. Well, I cannot thank you enough for joining me on the show, for sharing these incredible stories. <laughs> like, it's my pleasure, Laura. Thanks so, so much for asking me. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening and to my incredible guest today, Jane Jenkins. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe, and tell a friend. Our number one goal here at What's My Frame is to encourage, educate, and support our creative community. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Laura Linda Bradley, and this is What's My Frame. <laughs>